Show me the money. Welcome to the MoneyWeb Market Commentator Podcast, where leading investment professionals share their investment insights. Your host, Rake van Niekerk. Welcome to this Market Commentator Podcast. My name is Rake van Niekerk, and in this podcast series, I pick the brains of the leading investment professionals in South Africa, and we try to peek over their shoulders to see what they are seeing in their crystal balls. My guest today is Duncan Artis. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Alan Gray. He has been with Alan Gray for more than 20 years, 15 of which as a portfolio manager. Uh, Duncan, thank you so much for joining me. I want to start with uh, comments you made last year when you spoke to the Sunday Times. It was shortly after you took the reins from Andrew Lapping in September. And in the interview, you said you were very, very worried about South Africa's fiscal position and that the country is approaching a death spiral, uh, which could be very damaging for local equities. Yet today, our market is close to an all-time high, while our fiscal position remains dire. It hasn't really changed significantly, despite some uh, bullish uh, expectations of tax revenue. But uh, are you still worried? Longer term, uh, we must always remember, right, journalists like very uh, explosive headlines as opposed to long uh, arguments, which, which you speak to them about. But no, for sure, I mean, it, if you look at the trajectory of debt to GDP, clearly if you're paying 5 or 6% real to borrow on your long bonds and your GDP is growing at one real, I mean, it's just the mass. It can't carry on forever, right? So the government's paying a very high price to borrow for any kind of duration, in other words, for any kind of length. You know, if the Reserve Bank cuts the short end like it has, you know, that's not where the government's borrowing. So to actually borrow for any length of period, investors are demanding a, a very high return. We have been bailed out to a large extent by the strength of the commodity prices, particularly the platinum group metals and within platinum uh, group metals, palladium and rhodium. And then if you had a look at the Kumba results, uh, obviously the iron ore and the premiums we're getting. So you know, we've been running these massive trade surpluses. Um, without that, it would have been pretty interesting to see what we would have looked like. And of course, we know commodities go through big cycles. Um, this may be one that lasts longer. But, you know, South Africa has only really done well as an economy over the last couple of decades when, when the commodities have, have been strong. So they've kind of masked some of the fundamental issues for, for now. Uh, but I do think the long-term structural problem is, you know, we need to grow. To, we can't keep borrowing. Yes, uh, that's definitely been uh, a common perspective. But back to the markets again, you know, many people uh, and many analysts and many fund managers uh, regard the local performance of the market as flowing through from the uh, really excellent performances we've seen in international markets. And in many ways, it is actually ignoring what is happening locally, economically and politically. Do you think that disconnect is justifiable? Part of it's true. I mean, the Fed is printing $120 billion a month. It's got to go somewhere. You can just do the maths if you put that into two rands. And with interest rates being low offshore, you know, if there's any sort of positive sentiment towards emerging markets, we, we'll get our fair share, even though we're a lot smaller. South Africa, I think, used to be 6 or 7% of the emerging market index. We're only around 3 now, and, you know, almost 40% of that is just NASPAS. So that foreign money coming into the market, I, I think, is a potentially quite bullish thing. And I think if we go back to sort of 
March, April last year, you know, we were saying we were very bullish on local South African equities. And so one interesting thing about modern technology, you can go and look what you said on videos now. Um, so, you know, we're not making it up. And I think what people had discounted was way too much bad news. Um, so all that's happened is, you know, the local stocks have produced results that were much better than, than people thought um, for two reasons. One, um, obviously, cost cutting, which is not sustainable over the very long term, but companies have all cut their costs. And second of all, the cash flow has been a much stronger. So, you know, you really focus on your balance sheet, you focus on your working capital, it allows you to pay down debt. So I think if you had to say what are the sort of domestic facing companies produces results versus what people expected, you know, all they had to be was a little less worse. And so we've seen a massive rally, particularly when we express it in dollars. You know, people look at the share prices in rands, but don't forget the rands come back from mm. 18 odd to, to 14.50. So in dollars, the, the share prices are up even more than they are in rands. Um, to me, what's interesting, you know, we had a slide that we were showing clients that you could buy the entire South African listed retail sector plus Anglovol Industries and Tiger Brands, who are the two biggest food companies, if we expressed it in dollars for about $22 billion uh, last year, just Tesco's market cap was 25. So you could either buy Tesco, which is not exactly in a high growth country, or you could buy every single retailer in, in South Africa and the two biggest food companies. So I think what happened is South African assets just got too cheap. And it's interesting if you start to look around, you know, Heineken making the potential bid for the Stell, you know, Standard Bank looking to take out the Liberty minorities, um, Paxton buying uh, sort of a, a large stake in, in impact, the, the producer. So, you know, I think South African assets look look cheap to foreigners who, who are willing, I guess, to take a longer term view. Now, we'll talk about the perception of uh, individual stocks a bit later. But several asset managers such as 91 and PSG have publicly stated that they see the local market as offering real value. Despite the risks we face locally, do you agree with that? Yes, so I think, Rick, I mean, the best way to check that rather than listening to people is to look at their fact sheets, right? So if you look at the fact sheet for the balance fund, the, the equity weighting is, well, if I look this morning, it's around 71, 72. Bearing in mind the max, we can go 75. So we currently have our highest equity weighting since post the, the GFC. Um, why is that? Well, one, we bought a whole load of assets last year. And two, obviously, the, the market's been strong. The easy way I try to think about it is, how do we compare assets is to say, well, if I want to sell something today, is it easy to sell something in the portfolio to buy a new idea? And it's actually quite difficult when I go through the list of stocks in, in my portion of the, of the funds. You know, let's say I want to buy company X today and I have to sell a bit of company Y. I go, oh, you know, I don't really want to sell too much of, of, of company Y. What I would put of a, a proviso is we think the U.S. stock market is high. Um, so I think when, when people say South African assets are cheap, I think they're right in terms of equities, but that doesn't mean they go up 4% real, 4% real, 4% real. Um, you know, you could have dislocations in, in between. And if you had to ask me, you know, you only had to look what, what happened to NASPAS a month over the last month, but we would be concerned about the U.S. market. So we very underweight the U.S. market. Um, and if there's a big sell-off in America, does it come through to South Africa in the short term? It, it probably will. But I would expect South African equities actually to do better than American equities in, in any kind of global sell-off. Would your portfolio still look the same if there were no exchange control, no Regulation 28, and you could take money from people saving for retirement and invest it for the long term anywhere in the world? No, we, we'd have a much higher weighting offshore, depending where 
sort of the different variables and valuations are. I mean, South Africa is only 1% of the world. Why would you have 100% of your money in 1% of the world? So it, it, it kind of makes sense, you know, on, on sort of the studies we've done, and it, it was a number of years ago, so it might, the number might have changed, but roughly 30% of a South African's expenses are, are linked to exchange rates. You know, you can make up some numbers closer to that or, or bigger than that. So, you know, that's probably the minimum you want to have offshore as a hedge um, against currency depreciation or just to hedge the, the basket of, of goods you buy. Um, but it's clear that more choice is better for the portfolio. But funny enough, what we found, and it's the reason we don't have a flexible fund. You'd notice Alan Gray has a balanced fund and a stable fund and an equity fund. We don't have a flexible fund, despite many advisors and clients asking us, because we have something on the institutional side where it it's takes a little bit more of an extreme view and, and the client behavior is not great. And certainly in my 20 years here, the worst decisions I've seen by clients are they always take their money out offshore when the rand's very weak um, and they always bring it back when the rand's very strong. So, you know, if you kind of have a fund that's very, very flexible, uh, the client behavior can often wipe out um, mm. the extra returns you can get from, I guess, having a more flexible mandate. Given that position you've just uh, articulated, um, what do you think the opportunity costs are for investors uh, locally if a significant asset manager such as Alan Gray you know, would say that the portfolios would look different if there were no regulations? Um, it's difficult to, to know. Right? Funny enough, over 120 years, we do have the long-term numbers um, from the different studies. South Africa has actually been one of the top performing equity markets. Um, so South African equities have done sort of 8 9% real, so 3% real better than the global average of 120 years is pretty good. Um, now, you can argue the last 20 years are maybe different, so those numbers have been coming down on a relative basis. I mean, it makes sense. The U.S. stock market, 60% of the world, the U.S. has basically been the only place to be. And I often say to people, it's very interesting, if you look at, and I'm, I haven't looked in the last month or so, but if you looked at the European equity markets and you express them in dollars, they're lower than they were in 2007. So people sometimes look at South Africa and they go, wow, you know, and I think if we look at the FTSE in the UK, it took till about 2017 to pass its peak from 1998. And I don't see people calling England a failed state. So what really matters is the, is the valuation you pay. So it's not obvious. There'll be periods like 2002 to 2010 when South Africa massively outperforms the world index. And then there'll be periods like the last 11 years when we've underperformed the world index. But I, I would like to stress that America has driven almost all the outperformance of, of global equities versus, versus South African equities. I think the argument more comes down to diversification. You know, and unfortunately, let's just say as a local fund manager, we want access to technology shares just on the JSC. I mean, in reality, you can only buy nice pass. So, you know, would it make sense to have you know, exposure to Facebook and Google or whichever company you, you want to name. Sure, it gives you, it gives you greater choice. Um, you know, if you want to buy into pharmaceuticals, we only really have Aspen. And you can say Aspen's more of a manufacturer than a, mm. than a pharma company. So, you know, that's where I think the sort of potential opportunity cost is. I've looked at the fact sheets of your equity fund, your balance fund and your stable fund. And interestingly, the underlying investments are relatively similar among the top holdings. In all three funds, the names appear of NASPAS, British American Tobacco, Glencore, 
Willie, Sabanya Stillwater and Standard Bank. Now, these are all blue chip companies, but does it make sense to have them in all three funds? Um, so, so generally, uh, remember, the, the funds are very different. So obviously, the equity fund, someone says, well, here's 100% you can put into equities, and that's what we, we go and find the best equities we can. You know, the balance fund, someone says, look, Alan Gray, I don't want to do the asset allocation myself. You know, subject to Reg 28, please, can you do the, the asset allocation? And then the stable fund, which is sort of very different, that's got a maximum equity weighting of, of 40%. Um, so we would generally tend to have the same shares across all three funds. If you had to look through the full list, um, which obviously you can only see the top 10, um, the stable fund would look a bit different. So we would have a few more, for want of a better word, stable companies in there. So you'll see something like multi-choice is in the top 10. So even though we own it in the balanced and the equity fund, it would have a greater weighting in stable, something like Anglevol Industries, the, the food producer, Anheuser-Busch, InBev would have bigger weightings in the stable equities that, than they would in, in balanced and, and equity. But, yeah, but in general, the big holdings would look pretty similar because they're the shares we find most attractive. You own Naspers and not Process. Uh, why? Um, well, uh, I guess, you know, both shares, when, when they trade, they, you can work out the discount that Naspers trades to Process and Process trades to, to Tencent. And, you know, the discount in Naspers was around 50% to the combined Tencent and, and the rest of Naspers assets. And obviously, because Process is closer to the assets that traded at a lower discount. So I guess... You could say it, it's more a sort of, I wouldn't want to say a bet. It's more like an investment that management will have to keep being pressurized. And I guess one day would would like to close the bigger discount in NASPAS, if, if, if that makes sense. Mm. But obviously from Monday, we're going to earn a lot of process because you'll be exchanging your, your NASPAS shares for process shares. So when you open the fact sheets in end of September, and you can see the new weightings. I mean, there'll be process in there, depending on the relative discount that, that each share is trading at. So you did accept the, the share swap offer? Yes, we've tendered our, our shares. And yeah, we'll see, we'll see how the shares react. Because obviously, went X, I think yesterday or Wednesday, that means you can't sell your NASPAS shares for the next two days. So the, the first time you can sell your NASPAS shares on Monday. And so we'll see what the what the shares do. It's going to be very interesting. Interesting indeed. COVID-19, it was and is a bit of a, a roller coaster, especially on equity markets. How do you think did this pandemic distort markets? Well, it's distorted markets in two ways. I think, you know, if we just look at the local equities, we didn't think local equities were expensive in February 2020. But, you know, then COVID comes and they sold off anyway, all the way to 37,500 <laughs> odd on the, on the all share index. But by far the, the biggest effect that COVID had when I think about it is we know central banks have basically, for want of a better phrase, been printing money or keeping interest rates close to zero since the great financial crisis. But what happened, and it was happening before COVID, but really accelerated is now you've added a massive fiscal spending in the US and, and in Europe. So you've now got easy monetary policy plus very stimulus spending by the government and you don't often get the two of them together to such a great extent and you know no one really knows what the effect of this is going to be we, we've seen inflation spiking in in the short term but to me it's completely distorted sort of economies and sort of markets and the interesting thing to to think about that is south africa didn't really do quantitative easing other than the reserve bank buying i guess a few bonds in the market 
So I think the South African economy is more a real reflection of what the economy is actually like. Whereas in America, in the UK and Europe, where you, you printed these trillions of dollars and, and you've had all the spending, it's difficult to know what the true level of, of, of the economy actually is. Did your approach change during this pandemic or since February last year? Did you trade more within the portfolios or, or, or less? Uh, oh, we traded massively in March and April last year, right? Because obviously there were lots of things that were falling significantly in, in those two months. So, for instance, you know, Alan Gray's never really had a long duration. In other words, you know, our fixed income, we don't go very long in the yield curve. We, we're normally pretty conservative on duration. But, you know, the South African long bonds and the inflation-linked bonds we saw where they sold off, you know, we bought a lot of South African government bonds. And, you know, when the market's as volatile as it was, I mean, it just gives you opportunities. If you think Anglo-American is worth X and NASPAS is worth Y and the movement between the two is 15% in two weeks, I mean, you, you are able to, to move some of the funds. And offshore, we increased the equity exposure during March and April as well. And, you know, it's probably more just scanning sort of the markets, looking at the opportunities. But sectors, parables, you know, the more, the more volatile the markets are generally, the more the, the portfolio will, will change. Yeah, that's interesting. Many fund managers would tell normal retail investors to rather sit on your hands during a crisis like that. Things will normalize in due course. But Alan Gray seems to have acted on it. How's your approach to such a an event? Is it do you regard it as an opportunity, or you just want to save and preserve capital? So we, I mean, obviously, if someone went 100 percent to cash in March and April, they're really regretting it now, right? The market's up more than as close to 100%. So that's what I mentioned about behavior earlier, that the difference between investor performance and fund performance. I mean, people can go and look it up on the internet. There, there are quite a few studies that, that show the average investor performs worse than, than the average fund because they tend to buy high and, and sell low. But you know, when you have these opportunities, you've you got to think of it in two ways. Well, I'm buying the shares for 50% less than they were a month before. If everything's equal, you, you know, they should be cheaper and you should be increasing your exposure to, to equities. But we also think about the risks. So I'll give you an example. In March, early April, we, we spent two whole afternoons just on the South African banks. And instead of looking at the evaluations, we, we spent the whole four or five hours just on their balance sheets. You know, how do the balance sheets look? How does the liquidity look? What are the capital ratios? What will the capital ratios look like if bad debts are double what they were in the in the GFC? So you think about risk as, as well. We spent a whole day going through every company in the portfolio and the analysts had to rank a probability of the company having a rights issue. Because you can imagine in, in March and, and April, you're sitting with companies with lots of debt on their balance sheet. If you're a casino or a hotel company, you had to close. You know, so we, we looked at that and we had a number in our mind of how much of the portfolio we would have to spend if all these companies had to, to raise money. As it turned out, only a couple did. So yes, take advantage of the opportunity, but also start thinking, we also think very hard about the risk in the portfolio. And you've got to be prepared like that. Otherwise, as you mentioned, Rake, it's difficult to make decisions. So you've got to be sort of in a frame of mind where you've already done the mental sort of preparation and you go, if this happens and it gets worse, you know, what are we going to be doing in, in the portfolios? What has the result of this approach been? Because I'm looking at your equity fund fact sheet over the last two years, you underperformed the benchmark by two percentage points. And then over the last year, which is not a, a similar period to what you are referring to, the performance was nearly 24%, which was uh, 3% lower than the benchmark. How do you measure your success of uh, taking this approach? 
Well, obviously, there, there are two ways to, to measure success. One is we, we want to grow people's wealth in, in absolute terms, and we want to outperform the benchmark. So if you look at it there, it, depending you know how you measure it, so you know, some periods there's, there's good alpha. It's just you know we thought South African domestic shares were not expensive, as I mentioned in, in February. So, for example, we had, we had a reasonable position in banks, and when COVID came, you know, the banks fell and the big stocks have outperformed. So, you know, by def- definition to outperform, you've got to look different from the index. That means you're going to underperform some periods. And that's why asset management is a much more difficult industry than people think. But if we look up until a month ago with NASPAS, almost all the performance over the last three years in the South African stock market has only really come from the big five shares. So NASPAS, BHP, Anglos, and Richemont. And, you know, many managers do to uh, think about relative risk instead of absolute risk. In other words, even if they think Anglos and BHP are expensive, they'll still hold a position because they would be worried about underperforming. So as an example, in 2008, if you remember, Anglo-American and BHP Billiton made up almost a quarter of the South African stock market. We owned zero in them. And that didn't look good into the peak of 2008, but then it looked very good afterwards. And I think in hindsight, that was the right decision. So... You know, for a manager that has to look different from the index, almost all the performance has been driven by by the big shares. And that's been a nice thing over the last couple of months. You know, the performance sort of coming through where the shares that are not the big shares in the index have, have continued to, to do well. And, you know, in South Africa, it's a strange sort of thing. You can look at the all share index, you can look at the cap SWIX, you can look at the SWIX, they're all kind of different sort of indices out there. Um, and then second of all, as I mentioned you know, if you look at the equity fund and the balance fund, obviously 30% roughly is offshore. And our sister company, Orbis, have been very underweight in the U.S. So we roughly got about a quarter of the offshore equities in the U.S., whereas I would think most people would have 60 or, or 70. And obviously the U.S. stocks have been the place to be. We think they're expensive and we're finding much more value in emerging markets and, and Europe. So you know, let, let's come back in a year or two and, and see how that has worked. Just lastly, we are seeing many international fund managers offering some crypto funds and products. Also recently saw research which indicated that many more of the asset managers are looking at cryptos as an opportunity to expand product offerings. But this hasn't happened in South Africa. Are you looking at any possible crypto-linked offerings? No, no, we wouldn't be looking at that. So I think, first of all, obviously, to point out, you can't own it in a Reg 28 fund. But let's say you could. Um, and maybe there will be rules. I mean, I, I personally have no problem with someone who says they want to put 1% or 2% of their wealth into cryptocurrencies. But as we've seen, they, 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 they're very, very volatile and difficult to, to put a value on. And, you know, it is interesting because a lot of what people say is, well, the supply of Bitcoin is limited. But now there's a whole ton of other um, cryptocurrencies. And my sort of concern is there could be some... I mean, whenever you have a big bubble, if I can call it that, in cryptocurrencies, there's always dodgy stuff going on, right? You only have to see the amount of exchanges where people have lost all their money. And there's probably likely to be a big fraud globally in in crypto. And if people lose their confidence, then, you know, what is the value that you put on Bitcoin? Or what is the value you put on whatever any number of the other cryptocurrencies are if they start falling and people lose, lose confidence? But as I said, like, you know, they're very, very smart managers, as you pointed out offshore who will have a couple of percent of their, their funds in, in cryptocurrencies. But let's see, you know, it's a, if you put it next to the net, it dwarfs all the other price increases in, in, in history that, that we've been able to find. Um, so yeah, I mean, you'll have believers and, and you'll not have non-believers. And 
I think that that in itself tells you something pretty interesting, but we prefer to own equities at the moment rather than cryptocurrencies. Where we've done our work is, and I think the big thing is, what do cryptocurrencies mean for financial institutions? And so we've done work on central bank digital currencies. You know, China is likely to launch a digital yuan. America then will have to catch up because what happens if China says we'll only accept payments for exports in digital yuan? What does that mean for the dollar? What does it mean for asset managers, life companies? You know, if you start using distributed ledgers, I mean, it's quite a complex subject, but that's more where we've been spending our time rather than um, trying to trade cryptocurrencies, I guess. Duncan, thank you so much for your time and insights today. That was Duncan Artis, the Chief Investment Officer at Alan Gray. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Market Commentator Podcast, where leading investment professionals share their investment insights. Hosted by Rake Fanica. For more MoneyWeb podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.